China's influence in the Middle East is growing by the day. What does it mean for America, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the region? A 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard was arrested for allegedly leaking highly classified intelligence. What is the fallout for U.S. national security? And JCPOA supporters are pushing President Biden to offer Iran a new nuclear deal, even as Tehran says no way. For those topics and many more, we turn this week to Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss, a U.S. military veteran and member of the United States House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and Chinese Communist Party. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Good to be back. It's great to be back. How was your Pesach Passover? My Pesach was great. It was filled with family time and skiing and enough matzah to make me wait till next year. Whole wheat, gluten-free or just regular, or maybe the stuff that just comes burnt that you use at the Seder. I, I do love a good shmora matzah from our friends at Chabad. Uh, did I you use like, Ukrainian shmora matzah this year? Uh, I did use Ukrainian shmora matzah. You know, Rich, I spent I spent a uh, Pesach in Odessa when I was in college. I think we talked about it last year. Yes. Very meaningful to me. Uh, but speaking of things that are meaningful around Pesach, I want to give a quick shout out to the new Capital Jewish Museum that's opening in June. Uh, I was honored and privileged to be able to donate one of the original Maxwell House Haggadahs that was used at the Obama, one of the Obama presidential seders, and it will be part of the permanent collection at that museum when it opens in June. And one other quick update uh, for our audience who's been following this issue of Morningstar. Morningstar, the big financial ratings firm that has uh, an ESG subsidiary that's uh, environment, social governance ratings, uh, Sustainalytics, uh, owned by Morningstar, that has uh, been facing uh, accusations for going on more than two years now uh, that uh, its ratings are biased against Israel, uh, that there are companies that are downgraded in their ratings, uh, investors dissuaded from investing solely based on operations uh, over the so-called Green Line, uh, even in Jerusalem, uh, obviously the West Bank and the Golan Heights. Uh, companies put on watch lists for providing uh, the IDF and the Israeli police systems to stop terrorist attacks. Uh, like Motorola Solutions uh, and Elbit Systems, uh, a large uh, Israeli defense contractor. Every Israeli bank, every Israeli cell phone company, uh, all hit by the blacklist uh, there. And uh, basically for, for all these months now, uh, Morningstar has basically denied any wrongdoing, saying you know that those that are reading their ratings are just getting it wrong. And there's been a lack of public disclosure, public transparency to be able to prove that this is happening. That has changed this week. Uh, a new public report out uh, this week actually publishes the entire blacklist. There was a UN Human Rights Council blacklist of Israeli-based companies. There is a Morningstar blacklist of Israeli-based companies. Uh, 25 now in total, all the banks, all the cell phone companies, some energy, some real estate. It's all online now with the ratings uh, that they are being given that are negative in nature to try to discourage investment. Uh, to me, a clear violation of state anti-VDS laws. This is a boycott of Israel uh, designed through ESG ratings. Uh, and hopefully we will see states uh, and perhaps even the federal government uh, take some action here. Uh, but uh, the story not closed. Uh, I will note that in, in this report that came out this week, Motorola, 
after a lot of our analysis and a lot of our discussion uh, and uh, some of my recent op-eds, has been taken off the watch list. This is the big news of the week um, after uh, a big story in the New York Post that featured the Motorola blacklisting by by Morningstar earlier this year. They have now removed uh, reportedly Motorola solutions from their watch list, from their controversies ratings. Elbit, though, still on there for helping Israel stop terrorist attacks and all the other ones I mentioned. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep talking to you about it. We'll keep updating you, but uh, go, go check it out. The blacklist is online. If you know anybody that uh, uses Morningstar ratings, uh, uh, let them know. Yeah, and, and Rich, for a guy who believes in ESG in me, this really pisses me off, right? Because if you're if you, ESG is part of what you stand for and it's part of your investment strategy, then then it should be what it is and not a a you know somebody using it for some other kind of aim, uh, which is clearly to be anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. And so, you know, uh, as as the the left of center on this call on this pod, I feel like, you know. People need to hear me say it. That this is just this is not okay. Uh, the the person who put it best of all people in the world was the CEO of Unilever. After <laughs> being dragged through everything that happened after the Ben and Jerry's boycott, and seeing states divest uh, their pension funds from from Unilever, eventually, by the way, being ousted as CEO, uh, told the Wall Street Journal once it was all over. Companies, C-suites, investors need to stay out of geopolitics because we just don't get it. Uh, and this is like the most complicated part of geopolitics in history, in the world. And if you're just going to take some biased NGO, you know, some some anti-Israel group that says, hey, here's social responsibility, go, go uh, blacklist these Israeli companies, you are wading into something you have absolutely no chance of understanding. Get out of it. Don't be there. Indeed, indeed. All right, let's get to our guest, Rich. Take us away. Let's do it. Congressman Jake Auchincloss, a repeat uh, guest here on the Jewish Insider Podcast. You can recall him about a year and a half ago, just after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, was uh, on here before. Can't wait to hear him now in his second term, representing the Massachusetts 4th District and recently appointed, very interestingly, to the Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and China. That committee, by the way, chaired by one of our first guests, uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, a good friend of of the podcast. We will have him on, too, for for a repeat uh, appearance. Uh, Jake was born and raised in Newton, Massachusetts. After graduating from Harvard College, he joined the Marines and commanded infantry in Afghanistan and special operations in Panama. He's a former city councilor in Newton. He lives in Newton now with his wife and their children and their Labrador retriever, Donut. Uh, Shout out to Donut. And Congressman, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be with you. Welcome back to the podcast, Jerry. Yeah, that's welcome right. Welcome back. back. Right, it's is an illustrious group of of guests that have been back Very for a second few. time. Not even Very the few. chairman of your new committee, who was one of our first, but he'll he'll listen to this episode and be like, "I want back on." That's what's going to happen here. You know, Mike Gallagher and I one time did a podcast together on strong towns about parking policy. So we'd love to have uh, a back and forth with him on this one, too. Now, that is a podcast everyone in our listenership will be looking up right now. Uh, that when next next time you're in an exercise class, like you want something that that's going to get you motivated. I love it. Anyways, Jared, keep going. All right. Congressman, you're a new member, as Rich alluded to, of the House Select Committee on China, which has been winning accolades 
bipartisanship rather than partisanship, which is great. You just mentioned Mike Gallagher, one of the great friends to this podcast. How did you end up on this committee and what's the goal as you see uh, in this Congress? The goal of the committee is to rise above day-to-day politics and chart long-term sound strategy to outcompete the Chinese Communist Party. And to do that, it needs to, one, create shared awareness within the halls of Congress about the scope and severity of the challenge posed by the CCP, ideological, military, economic. And two, it needs to create shared conviction about a discrete set of policy recommendations that 70% of Congress can get behind. I say 70% because that means that it's a durable consensus that will guide foreign policy regardless of who's in the White House and that has majorities within both caucuses, Democrat and Republican, as well as, of course, within the House itself. That's really the goal here. We need members to be paying attention, and then we need members to be largely aligned on what to do about it. And for many uh, years, I would say, in Washington, we've talked about this pivot to Asia, right? This, I think, started this term in the Obama administration, continued throughout. It's bipartisan. Now you hear it, uh, you know, we got to prepare, prioritize our national security, the threat from China, first and foremost, pull out of the Middle East, get into Asia. And there's something that's been happening, certainly an awakening given some of these uh, Chinese broker deals between the Saudis and the Iranians that we've been tracking, where people are waking up to the fact that the Chinese, it's not new if you've been tracking it, are are themselves pivoting around the world in part into the Middle East as well, looking for vacuums, looking to pick up where the United States presence is not being felt anymore, at least by our traditional allies. And I'm sort of wondering how you are are seeing some of these uh, news reports coming out, whether it is, you know, the Chinese welcoming this last week, the foreign ministers from Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, Saudi looking uh, towards China rather than the United States. Uh, even the Israelis now, we just heard, had a phone call, the foreign minister with the Chinese foreign minister asking for China's help on Iran, not not asking for Washington's assistance. Uh, It just seems like there is some odd dynamic going on of China in the Middle East. I'm wondering what your take on it is so far. 23 years ago, the United States and our allied powers welcomed China into the World Trade Organization. And that was part of a, a thesis that was shared in Washington and other capitals throughout the West that by engaging in more open trade and through uh, involving them in multilateral institutions, China could be put on a glide path to responsible global citizenship. Not necessarily to become a liberal democracy at home, but to be a responsible actor overseas. And then the next year, 9-11 happened, and America stopped focusing on China and spent $6 trillion in 20 years bogged down in forever wars in the Middle East and Central Asia. And then We lifted our head up two decades later, looked around and realized that China had not been a responsible global actor. It had destroyed the WTO, the norms and rules that had upheld that institution had been denigrated to the point where they don't even really work anymore, had militarized the South China Sea, had been terrorizing Taiwan across the straits, had been engaging in fisticuffs on the Himalayas with India, had been engaging in mercantilistic practices in Africa to create really a form of neo-colonialism through debt, had been buying up digital infrastructure in Latin America and trying to own the the zeros and ones that compose much of their critical infrastructure, uh, and in general had just been uh, 
externalizing many of the nefarious policies that they had been operationalizing at home. We have seen from their treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, we have seen from their crushing of civil society in Hong Kong, we have seen from their omniscient COVID surveillance practices against their own people, the kind of governance that they want to impose worldwide. And this is an ideological contest. It's about values. We here in the United States think that individuals have inherent value and dignity, and the CCP doesn't agree. They think individuals are pawns of the state. It's, it's a worthy and necessary contest for the 21st century, but that does not mean it needs to devolve into war. I don't subscribe to this Thucydides trap mentality that as the rising power of China and the preeminent power of the United States collide, there has to be war. I think statesmanship can avert it. And we are seeing Joe Biden uh, attempt to do that. He's imposing very strong Export controls, for example, on semiconductors and other critical technology. He is encouraging, with the help of Congress, the private sector to de-risk from uh, China and to friendshore. But at the same time, he's extended a hand to the Chinese, particularly on climate action and clean energy, to say that he wants to work with them on that transnational issue. And that's going to be the ongoing balance we need to strike. It's a nation of 1.4 billion people. Most of them we have no quarrel with. But the CCP is a autocratic and nefarious institution. And we're going to have to be able to compete and even prepare for conflict with the CCP while trying to work with the Chinese people on issues that affect all of our kids, like climate change, like public health, like counterterrorism. Just to go deeper just a little bit here, um, you know, it does strike me that there is some disconnect here. I, I, I don't think there's anything disagreeable with what you've just said. And a lot of the, the, the de-risking, et cetera, you know, it really started probably during COVID and, and some of the Trump administration policies that, that have frankly been continued by the, by the Biden administration, since a lot of them are bipartisan in nature today uh, in a way that we really haven't seen on, on the China issue in a long time, which is a good thing, I think, in all of our opinions. Uh, but for our traditional allies, you know, if this is a global competition, not just an East Asia competition, that means we're competing with China where they are, right, which is Latin America, which is Africa, which is the Middle East. And there is this tendency to feel like, well, we, did, we can't have crisis everywhere. We can't be everywhere. We're not the world's policemen. We don't want forever wars. So let's try to unhook ourselves from all of these regions so that we have more resources available for Asia. But then the Chinese say, okay, well, then there's nobody contesting me in the Middle East. There's nobody contesting me elsewhere. So we get to slide in. We get to have partnerships with the Saudis and with the Emiratis instead of Washington. And long term, that doesn't seem to be sustainable either in a global competition scenario. So how do we, how do we balance that? I, I would reject the premise that global engagement is a zero sum or even a costly endeavor. The Abraham Accords, for example, are a positive sum endeavor. The United States is stronger. Israel is stronger. Uh, Arab states are stronger because of the Abraham Accords and spending diplomatic time and spending American prestige on, on supporting and cultivating the Abraham Accords. It doesn't cost us anything. That has huge returns. That is beneficial to us. Same thing with engagement with Latin America through Mercosur or, or the Organization of American States. Uh, that's to our benefit. That is what, what costs us money is when we lie about weapons of mass destruction and spend 15 years fighting in the Middle East. That is expensive. That is why we need members of Congress who are going to 
call foul on commanders in chief who try to dissemble to the American people and get us bogged down in, in unwinnable wars. What's not expensive is diplomacy, trade, and investment ties that increase the value of the American operating system worldwide and entices rising nations like Indonesia, Nigeria, Brazil, Mexico to want to plug into our set of norms and our rules of the road that we have helped architect since World War II. That's what we need to be doing more of. And I, I just don't see that as zero sum or expensive. I see that as um, actually helpful to the American people and also helpful to people the world over. Congressman, two of the sort of great challenges, foreign policy challenges in the world today, Ukraine and Iran, China plays a, a, a pivotal role really in both of them. Uh, wondering how you see the U.S.-China competition vis-a-vis uh, -vis those two conflicts and what role must China play or will they play or could they play in resolving one or both of those conflicts going forward? There's an old proverb, show me who you walk with and I'll tell you who you are. Xi Jinping is showing the world who he walks with. He has uh, spent some serious quality time with Vladimir Putin. Uh, and has doubled down on his economic and military ties with the Ayatollah. And it's clear that Russia, China, and Iran are creating a new axis meant to be a counterweight to NATO uh, specifically, and really to the United States and its network of global alliances more broadly. Uh, it is more critical than ever that we support the Ukrainian people as they fight on the front lines of the free world. They need every arm, every dollar, uh, every piece of intelligence necessary to make their counteroffensive this spring and summer successful because NATO's ability to sustain Ukraine in its fight for sovereignty, freedom, and democracy is a clear alteration of Xi Jinping's cost-benefit analysis for invading Taiwan and directly affects uh, the balance of power in, in the Indo-Pacific for the next generation. I think Ukraine is an absolute test of... Uh, of the United States and its rules-based order that it's helped put together. Congressman, I, I like how you frame that uh, with that that new sort of axis forming. I, I've seen several others talk about that, write about that, and, and it seems right to me in, in, in my own analysis. Again, I come back to this sort of disconnect, though, when in the Middle East, if we have a traditional ally like Saudi Arabia, for some reason, whether it is you know, my analysis would be the Biden administration's Iran policy, right? The 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 dedication to making MBS a pariah, uh, pushing Saudi Arabia away. If Saudi Arabia, a traditional U.S. ally, important ally, is now hedging and sort of flirting with that new axis, flirting with with Beijing, saying, "Well, maybe I'll 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 look to Beijing for security guarantees in the Middle East because I'm not getting them from Washington." That to me seems to undermine a U.S.-led, you know, with allies coalition to counter China, to counter the Chinese-led axis that you've described. So, I mean, we wouldn't wouldn't it make more sense then to say, okay, well, China prioritizing our national security is clearly the most important. We have a threat from Iran. Iran's in the China axis. Let's embrace a pressure strategy on Iran, abandon sort of the JCPOA framework, have a security commitment with Saudi Arabia, in exchange for the Saudis swearing off a strategic relationship with China? The United States is not going to calibrate its foreign policy to the infantile 
protestations from MBS. I mean, we're talking about really an immature, uh, overstuffed, uh, bratty prince here who I don't think is ready for the big leagues. And uh, let's keep in mind that Saudi Arabia does not share our values and does not seem to share many of our priorities. And if you look at, at the list of demands it put forward to join the Abraham Accords, I mean, it's preposterous. It, it was not a set of demands that you would expect from a serious statesman. Uh, it's not something that they, someone like the King of Jordan, for example, who's got long practice in that area, would have considered a serious opening bid. It was, it was one long tantrum asking for security guarantees that the United States is just not going to offer to a country that persecutes its own people. Uh, we welcome Saudi Arabia to join uh, the Middle East air defense vision that will uh, contain Iran and protect Arab as well as Israeli people. We welcome Saudi Arabia to become a good actor in regional economic and cultural ties as other states have as part of the Abraham Accords. We certainly welcome Saudi Arabia's help in diffusing tensions with the Ayatollah uh, and ending the war in Yemen. But we're not going to prostrate American values and foreign policy to some uh, privileged uh, moron like MBS. I would just say, Congressman, Rich just set a new record for the longest he's gone on a podcast without blaming it all on Joe Biden. But... Uh... <laughs> But with that, uh, it's, not, it's not all on Joe Biden. Uh, Congressman, I would just I would just push back one a couple of things. One, one just to say, clearly throughout U.S. history, we have made those types of commitments to regimes with bad human rights records, Egypt and Jordan among them. Right, the security commitments we provide, the assistance we provide, are inherently tied to their relationships and peace that they've made with Israel as well. I mean, we wouldn't just cut off Jordan today. We wouldn't just cut off the Egyptians. The Egyptians went through incredible turmoil in the last decade during the Arab Spring. I mean, there was a coup that removed an elected government, the Muslim Brotherhood, and we still provide assistance to, to the Egyptians. You know, clearly there is, you know, going back to Camp David, you know, a piece to this. So, I, I do I do sort of question whether or not that's that's sort of like a Saudi exception being being. Well, are you here. are you arguing that we don't provide assistance to Saudi Arabia right now? Well, we clearly provide an incredible amount of security blanket and guarantee. Um, I, I I'm not going to disagree with you that the opening bid from MBS was uh, something that is not uh, something that is workable in the U.S. political system. Um, and I imagine he has to have known that, and that's why I put it forward. Whether it was sort of a hard to get or, or something else, I think is a matter for diplomacy. But clearly it would be beneficial to the U.S. national security framework if Saudi Arabia did join the Abraham Accords and was not aligned with China. Again, we welcome Saudi Arabia to join the Abraham Accords. I agree with you that they're accretive to the value of that alliance. Uh, well, alliance is too strong a word, partnership. But again, we are not going to jump every time MBS says how high. I mean, this is a regional actor who has vastly overstated his importance and who's frankly playing a losing poker hand right now with a bunch of oil that uh, the world is trying to transition off of. And his attempts to diversify the economy, his megalomaniac projects in the desert with his you know, new city, it just speaks to me of someone who is 
really not thinking long term, is not thinking strategically. And if he thinks that the Chinese Communist Party is going to have his country's best interests at heart in the long run, uh, I think his people are going to suffer for that misconception. Congressman, one last question on China, and then we have a couple other things we want to get to you get to ask you about, uh, including recent news of the major national security leak. But before we get there, uh, Israel's foreign minister foreign minister announced he had his own call with China's foreign minister uh, to ask China about using its influence to help quell, you know, stop the Iranian nuclear program. Is this a checking the box? Uh, by Israel, something they have to do, or does this this signal some kind of a shift or hedge by by the Israeli regime uh, along the lines of what Rich was getting at uh, to to you know with the United States retreating from the Middle East in in Rich's words, uh, or is it just a sort of this is one of the things you have to do? China is one of you know the the members of the UN Security Council, permanent members, and it's just something you have to do. I'm not going to speak for. Israel's foreign ministry, that sounds like a question that they're going to have to answer. Honestly, if China can get Iran to become a, a good regional actor, good on them. Like that, that the Israeli right. people right. win, the, <laughs> the American people win. So have at it. Something tells me I shouldn't be holding my breath, though. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Congressman, wanted to ask you, um, massive intelligence leak on a wide range of issue con- committed by an, or allegedly committed by an Air National Guardsman from Massachusetts. What's your reaction? Obviously, there's a local di- there's a local piece of this story to you. Uh, there's a national and international. What do you make of all this? And And maybe if you can kind of break it down a little bit for us. This individual, as you say, alleged to have leaked hundreds of documents, many of which were classified top secret, was a Air National Guardsman in Massachusetts, lived in my district, 21 years old, junior enlisted. And functionally, his role was was tech support, which probably indicates how he had access to some of this documentation is, uh, you know, when 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 you need people working on hardware and software that's broken, you do have to give them access to things. And that's probably how he had some access that I think has raised eyebrows. Uh, and there's really a couple of different threads to pull on here. One is the individual himself and any of his co-conspirators should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. They betrayed their country. They put compatriots overseas at risk and have undermined U.S. interests. Number two, the Pentagon is going to have to come to the Hill and answer some tough and pointed questions about why Ukrainian war plans can be printed out in Cape Cod by a a junior enlisted Air National Guardsman. And then finally, obviously, the U.S. needs to do some fence mending and some fix up overseas. I'm not grievously concerned about this. I, I don't see any indications that anything that's been unveiled has shocked or permanently unsettled relations. But it is embarrassing and distracting. Clearly, it would have been better had it not had it not happened. And the most immediate concern is that nothing impaired the success of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yeah, Congressman, uh, the, the, your point on sort of how did did a person like this end up with the with these plans? How is it so accessible? I think is probably one of the most important systemic ones to focus on for Congress. Um, and, and it's interesting that we just haven't seemed to learn after past. Uh, leak problems that, you know, it is sort of this community of interest and it, it at least 
without getting into anything that we can't get into, it would seem as though there should be a conversation on how to limit uh, access, need to know, uh, even for communities of interest that have historically been granted very broad access so that the larger intelligence community, the larger DOD community can gain access. But clearly there needs to be a reevaluation of, of, of that sort of way of putting information out there on these systems. And Congressman, before you answer that, I just want to maybe have you answer that at the same time as answering, you know, there's definitely been a movement in the last few years to limit the overclassification of documents, which, you know, at least in my time in government was definitely used as a as a crutch to kind of um, get around freedom of information laws, whatnot. You know, there were definitely lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of things that were classified that you were like, this is not classified information. It's just something we don't want somebody writing a news story about. Um, so I guess, how do we how do we do both of those things at the same time? Jared, I'm so glad you raised that because that was exactly what I, where I was thinking as well. And I actually don't think those two objectives are intention. In fact, I think they're complementary. We grotesquely overclassify information in this country. And to your point, Jared, it's usually CYA, not need to know. It's yep. this is embarrassing or sensitive or, well, if it did get out there, I'd probably get in trouble. So I'm just better safe than sorry, right? Like it's that mentality that accretes across millions of people over decades. And all of a sudden we end up with just a massive overclassification of everything. And unfortunately, that's not just a bureaucratic issue. That's that's a real national security problem. It, it allows for the kind of mistakes that compounded the Iraq and Afghan, Afghanistan wars. And it took SIGAR, it took the Special Inspector General of Afghanistan reconstruction to plow through a maze of classification and get to the bottom of what had been going on. And what had been going on basically was that a bunch of National security officials in Washington had known for 10 years that we weren't succeeding in Iraq or Afghanistan, but nobody was telling the American people that. Thankfully, Joe Biden finally did. Um, so we need to fix that. And I would argue that would actually make it easier to be rigorous about that stuff that we really do need to protect. Because when you have fewer uh, items that meet those rigorous standards, it's going to be taken more seriously by those who are obliged to defend them. And it also is going to make it easier to track and, and to set up the systems and the protocols necessary to keep that information secure. Um, I, I couldn't agree more, Congressman. Uh, I'm glad to hear you speaking out on that. I'm glad that, that uh, we don't, you know, that, that folks in Washington are not uh, sort of having a knee-jerk reaction to this obviously not good situation uh, of this Air National Guardsman leaking all these plans, but that it's, it's not as used as an excuse for, you know, the next 20 years to classify everything ever written right. at any agency at all. Congressman, just switching gears for, for a moment, obviously we're coming up on Israel's 75th birthday uh, in coming days, Israel 75. Wondering how you assess the state of U.S.-Israel relations today uh, with Israel turning 75 and where you want to see U.S.-Israel relations go over the year ahead. Relationship is strong. I was there, what is it, a, a year and a half ago now and was able to join a bipartisan congressional delegation with AIEF, and it was one of the most meaningful experiences of my adult life, uh, astounded by the economic, political, uh, really moral success of the Israeli people um, and of the, the nation that they have built. And 
it continues to be a relationship with the United States built on a strong foundation of shared values uh, and of uh, shared democratic aspirations. And it, that shared foundation allows for hard conversations, which obviously we have had over the last six months. Um, and I think as with all great and enduring friendships, those hard conversations happen from time to time. And you hope that the friendship grows stronger because of them. Congressman, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about the Iran deal, because that's usually the question Rich, Rich asks. Uh, but we've seen some rumors uh, of a mini Iran deal that uh, the Biden administration is Biden administration is making another run at it. Uh, and I just, you know, what do you think the congressional, the sense of the Congress is about a potential mini Iran deal or Iran deal of any type and the sense of, uh, you know, the, the appetite for potentially authorizing military action against the Iranian regime to keep them from obtaining a nuclear weapon? There continues to be strong bipartisan consent in Congress that Iran should not act, uh, gain a nuclear weapon, uh, nor should we allow it to continue to fund and, and support proxy forces throughout the region or to uh, augment its ballistic missile regime, all of these things which set, threaten the peace of the region generally and of Israel uh, specifically. And I certainly support the administration using the whole suite of levers of power that it has through allies and, and, and directly to prevent Iran from, uh, from further threatening uh, the Middle East or, or Israel. Um, I don't want to see us bogged down in another in another war in the Middle East. I don't think the American people want to see that. Uh, and for that reason, uh, as always, diplomacy is preferable. Uh, I don't know what's happening in, in Vienna. The, there's very limited information about that. I don't know what documentation exists. I don't know how serious those conversations really are. Uh, as I've said in the past, I say again, any new deal is going to require congressional approval, though, and we'll evaluate it on the merits. I mean, obviously, with, with Iran already sort of coming out of the gate and saying that they were going to reject this idea of this interim deal or a freeze for freeze, a lot of different people calling it different things. There was there was a letter that went to the president last week, you know, urging him to keep keep trying, keep keep pushing this idea of, you know, lift some sanctions for maybe 60 percent enrichment halt or something like that. At some point, and, and we're seeing this telegraph from the Israelis, the Israelis are going to have their own red line militarily. Obviously, it's sort of like the boy who cried wolf. We've we've thought that for a decade, right? We haven't we haven't actually seen it yet. But at some point, we imagine there is, you know, if you're enriching close to 90 percent, there's some Israeli red line in, in the offing. Do you believe that while there may not be the support politically for an AUMF or, or direct action, we saw some test votes, obviously, in the Senate recently on this. Um, uh, as far as the appetite there uh, with the withdrawal, uh, the repeal of, of the 2002 AOMF. Um, but do you think there would be uh, support uh, for Israel if, if the Israelis take action unilaterally uh, and providing Israel with any resources uh, they would need uh, if they deemed it in their own national interest the time to take uh, more aggressive military action? Well, I mean, Israel... Israel is always going to act in its self-defense, rightfully so. It's a sovereign nation. And it does seem like being an Iranian nuclear scientist is the most dangerous vocation in the world. Uh, and I expect that will continue. Uh, but I, I can't engage in, in hypotheticals here. Let's see, let's see the actual scenario on the ground. The, the biggest challenge, I think, for any 
contemplation of direct strikes, regardless of who's doing them, is just whether you can actually find, fix, and finish the target. The, the Iranians are not dumb. These, these targets are not easily uh, findable, fixable, or destroyable by a lot of the air assets that, Israeli, that Israel has. And one last question, Congressman, before we get to our uh, exciting lightning round. You, you were a graduate of the lightning round last yeah, time. Uh, and we, and we switched have, it up for some, you. We have some new developments there in the lightning round realm. But last subsequent question, obviously, as an Afghanistan veteran, uh, and, and we talked at length in your first uh, appearance here on the podcast, uh, it was very close to the withdrawal and, and your reaction back then. We've now seen in the last few weeks the uh, National Security Council's commissioned review uh, uh, come out. Uh, a lot of discussion about that, uh, some critics uh, arguing that it, it was a bit of a whitewash of the administration's own responsibility and mistakes uh, in that withdrawal, sort of trying to shift it to the previous administration. Your take on the NSC uh, report, uh, I'm sure you've, you've done a deeper dive on it, and uh, where we are today on Afghanistan. A lot of reports of the situation deteriorating, women's rights, obviously. Uh, we've heard from from senior military leaders uh, on uh, ISIS, K, uh, and others uh, uh, quickly forming networks there. Um, is this sort of not on the radar right now, but it's going to be soon in a theater near you kind of threat that's developing there? I continue to support the Biden administration's decision to end a failed 20-year war in Afghanistan that did not admit of a military solution, uh, but rather had to have uh, political leadership resolve it. And that political leadership, as we saw when the Afghan president fled the country, just did not exist. And I think the, the president deserves plaudits for having the moral courage to tell the American people that this was not a war that American lives or American treasure should continue to uh, sustain, especially when we had the defining 21st century threat in the Indo-Pacific in the form of the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, the decision he was facing when he took office was not, oh, should I muddle along with my predecessor or, or should I get out? It was rather, should I surge troops there because he would have had to have broken the Doha agreement that Trump had signed before him, or should I leave? And surging troops there for a third decade of war would have been a grossly irresponsible thing to do. Uh, and this president acted with the decision and the integrity that you would expect from a commander in chief. Um, in terms of Afghanistan now, uh, as you said, the rights of women and girls and economic development in general is bad. Uh, I've continued to be a supporter of Western-led uh, investments in Afghanistan, particularly in mining, which can lead to uh, organic economic development that can, that can lift up the standards of living for the people there. And I've, I've pressed on numerous levels, levers here in Washington to try to get that started. Um, I also, see, but I do also see promising signs in terms of the United States' ability to work to uh, to deter counter to execute, I should say, counterterrorism. We've seen us use uh, unmanned aerial systems to to take out terrorist leaders, uh, and uh, and even to you know work with is probably too strong of a word, but at least not work at cross purposes with the Taliban in trying to contain and degrade ISIS K. Our congressman. We we had to think long and hard about how to flex our lightning round muscles here. So we came up with a couple questions we think will be even more illuminating than the last. But uh, as the obnoxious New Yorker on the podcast, I got to ask you, who is your favorite opponent of the Boston Red Sox? 
my favorite opponent of the Boston Red Sox. Um, I got to tell you, my head is all in the Boston Bruins right now. I'm not even thinking about the Boston Red Sox. I'm just pumped about the 65-win season that the Bruins just came off of and what they're going to do in the playoffs. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's still hockey season. Even yeah, you know, the only person the- I've I've heard deflect uh, a lightning round question with with that with that high quality was Benjamin Netanyahu when we asked him about his favorite Israeli wine, which he refused uh, to answer. Which he refused to answer. Good politician. So, but that was uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, answer answer the question you want to be asked. That, uh, <laughs> that that's the one hundred and one in comms prep. Uh, okay, uh, who is your favorite Republican member of Congress today to work with? I work with a number of Republican members of Congress. I'll, I'll tell you who I miss in Congress right now is Liz Cheney, who was such a moral force last term and with whom I developed a friendship and, and worked on to sustain support for Ukraine in Congress. And uh, I, wish she'd, I wish she'd come back in that seat. Uh, Liz Cheney, if you're listening to the podcast, we'd love to have you on. I'm going to put uh, Mike Gallagher down as your answer. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm writing that down. I do have a strong <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not taking previous ones. <laughs> Congressman, I don't know if you know this, but Rich and Mike Gallagher were staffers together way back in the day. That. So that it's also true. Rich's. That is true. R- he Rich had more Rich. hair then. He, yeah. he did not have, you know, we won't talk about that, but yes, uh, we all. So I had more hair than two. Actually, okay. Congressman, who is your favorite Jewish comedian? I got to tell you guys, I got two little kids, one more on the way. I'm back and forth. I just don't have time to listen to comedy. Um, I'll tell you my favorite comedian generally is Nate Bargatze. Okay. Could be know. Jewish. I don't Could be think Jewish. he's Jewish. But, <laughs> <laughs> but a welcome anytime on the J.I. Pod. So. That's, that's right. That's go. right. Congressman, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Jewish Insiders Podcast. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening.